0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Uh, My name's Nick. Uh, It is my privilege to be able to be preaching out of the Word of God this morning. Uh, Patrick did a great job last week. We have been preaching through the book of Hebrews and last week, Patrick... Preached on how Jesus is a better Moses. I'm just going to go back a couple of steps so we understand the history of Israel. Um, a God called a man called Abraham and he called him out, not because he did anything necessarily unique, not because he was especially holy, uh, but because God pursued him. And by his grace and choice, God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations and he um, then became known, God became known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had a son called Joseph, and many of us that have been around in uh, maybe uh, church culture or context will know of Joseph, and will know that because of Joseph, most of Israel ended up in Egypt, and then scripture tells us that there was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and all of Israel then became slaves. And what happened is Israel cried out to God for a rescuer, a redeemer, and God once again chose a man called Moses. Not because he was particularly gifted, not because he was particularly holy, but because he was God's choice to lead Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and uh, and then the mantle of leadership passed on to a man called Joshua, who. Moses was going to take the people out of Egypt, and Joshua was going to bring the people into the Promised Land. So that's the context within which we are now finding ourselves in the middle of chapter three of Hebrews, and so I'm going to be reading from chapter three, verse 14, and we're gonna kinda of break it up as we go along this, uh, this morning. He says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. That they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that as we, as we come here this morning, we don't come uh, expecting an intellectual academic exchange. Father, we are wanting to create a context where your spirit can meet with your people. Uh, where, we, where you can encourage, where you can comfort, where you can challenge, where you can lead. I pray by the grace of your spirit that you would make us open and attentive to the work of your spirit. And I also pray that your grace would rest on me as I try to be faithful to your word. He asks three rhetorical questions. I love reading through the letters of the Bible because there's a lot of rhetorical questions in the Bible. And he asks these three questions because he wants to make three things perfectly clear. He wants to make it clear who these people are were that rejected God. He wants, to, um, he, he wants the, the readers of the letter to the Hebrews understand how they rejected God and what the outcome was. And so he asks the same question. Who was it that rebelled? Who And how did they harden their hearts? Well, they did it through rebellion, basically saying, we're not going to do this. They did it through provocation, otherwise known as grumbling. They they did it through specific sin, where God would say, "Do not do this," and they did it. And they did it through disobedience, where God said, "Come with me," and they refused to come. All of those things are fruit of the tree of unbelief, and that's what he's saying is ultimately they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now the tragedy of all of this is is that the Israelites had tremendous evidence of God's goodness and His kindness. And his character. Uh, the Israelites were people that, as I said earlier, Moses rescued out of the slavery of Egypt. Uh, the 10 plagues that God placed on the gods of Egypt. The fact that they came to the Red Sea and God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross. The fact that God gave them a pillar of fire at night to warm them and a pillar of cloud during the day to keep them safe from the sun. All of these things are things that the Israelites would have known that God is powerful, that He's able to do exactly what He said He was going to do, and yet they rebelled. And they rebelled to the point at which God said that, uh, I was going to take you into the land of promise, but because you've rebelled, you're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Uh, and 40 years wandering in the wilderness led to this next place where Moses hands over leadership to Joshua and basically says to Joshua and to Caleb, I want you to go into this promised land and I want you to spy out the land. So Joshua and Caleb and 10 other spies, they go out and they, they spy this land and they come back and they say, it is exactly as God has said. It is a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is a land that is full of produce and they bring back this this massive cluster of grapes that two men have to carry on a pole in between them. And he says, however, it is full of the enemies of God, and we look like grasshoppers in their sights. I mean, I think a flea is smaller than a grasshopper. How many of you guys have seen a huge grasshopper? I'm like, "Those, those guys are big, right? But they chose grasshopper, and they said, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. And because of that, because of their disobedience, they were not able to enter the promised land. We, in our scenario, and the scenario in which the writer is writing to Hebrews, use this as an example. We're thinking, okay, we would never do that. If God were to split the sea for me so that I walked on dry land, I would never question God again. Yeah, that's right, Betty. That's right. Because we've all had those moments. We've all had those moments where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God moved we beyond a shadow of a doubt that God rescued, that God called. And we look at the Israelites and we say, how could you be so dumb? And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, this did happen. And right now, guys, this is happening to you now. And it's recorded in the word of God because it could happen to us. And we don't directly say, God, I don't trust you. We, we believe that we trust God just like we make our own decisions and believe that God will fulfill whatever we want to happen. The automatic resting state of the human being is the fact that we want to make our own decisions. Humanity has not changed, and deep in our souls there's this little gnawing reality that we don't believe that God is who He said He is and that He'll do what He said He was going to do and even like the Israelites that had all this evidence of God moving in power, we saying, okay, well, God, what evidence is there? Well, God gave us Jesus. We have the God-man historically, factually walking on this earth, died, crucified, risen from the dead. We have that evidence. Just like the evidence that the, the Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, this is what happened, we have the same evidence to actually say, and God pursued you the way that he pursued those Israelites. God made a way for you in the way that he made a way for the Israelites. We are very much like those ungrateful Israelites. In Numbers 11 verse 5, this is what the Israelites say to their leaders. Now remember, they're in Egypt, they were slaves. They say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Man, let me tell you, when things are difficult and when we are slogging through life, We place extra weight on our most recent disappointment. And we forget everything that God has done for us in the past. And in fact, we create false memories. Nothing multiplies the false memory like the immediate desire for comfort and for having our own way. Nothing multiplies that. Now, I cannot say with any certainty that they didn't eat melons that they didn't eat garlic, that they didn't eat what they said that they were going to eat. But I can tell you that slaves were not treated in the way in which they said that they were treated. I think what happens often in our lives is, is in this moment of pain and in this moment of difficulty, we look back at an area where we weren't free and God had freed us and we said that was better. That was better because we don't trust God's character. And when we say that's better, we're actually making the statement that God, I, I don't trust you. I was uh, eight years old and went to the supermarket with my grand. Now, gran- grandparents are amazing because they get to do all the good things and they don't have to do any of the disciplining. Right? That's the parents' job. And um, and so my grand gave me a dollar. Well, not a dollar, but a rand. She gave me a rand, and she said, uh, this is yours, and after we go shopping, uh, we're going to go get an ice cream. So I was like, awesome. And I didn't have a place to put it. She said, give it to me. I'll put it back in my wallet and, um, for safekeeping. So we go to the cashier, and she's busy paying for the groceries, and she takes out this money. And I say to her, that's my money. <laughs> of course I did, right? And she says, no, baby, that's, that's not your money. Um, no, that is the dollar that you gave me that you said was mine. You're giving it to them to buy groceries. You're a liar. Nothing changes a grandparent to a parent once you call them a liar, right? Because right there in that moment, my grandma ceased to be my grandma, and she became my parent. And she said, you're embarrassing me. I said, you're taking money from me. You're stealing from me. This is not fair. What was bad about that? There's a lot of bad about that situation. I understand that. There's a lot of bad. But what was the worst thing that happened in that moment? I did not believe that she had my best interests in mind. I did not believe that she was going to do what she said she was going to do. And in fact, I believed that she was going to rip me off. And we look at them and we say, yeah, but there's something wrong with you. I'm not <laughs> denying that necessarily. <laughs> what I am saying is there are often moments in our lives where something flips and the deep resting soul that was put there by Adam and Eve, suddenly we distrust everything we know to be true about God. And we say, you are trying to rip me off. And God in his kindness begins to reparent us. We believe that God is withholding, that He doesn't understand the, the situation that we're in, that He doesn't have all the facts, that He's not concerned or committed to my joy or my flourishing. And that's what they believed. And so the writer says, so because they acted this way, what should we do? And so he continues in chapter 4. Therefore, has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, What the writer is trying to tell them is, guys, this is what happened back then. And he's quoting Psalm 95 from David, and and, and he's saying, there is still a rest for the people of God to step into. Uh, Because if there wasn't, then David wouldn't be saying today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So he's trying to say to them, yes, this was an example that God used through his people, but the reality is still there for you today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And the same is true for us, because what do we say consistently here at Mercy Commons? Even though the Bible wasn't written to us, it's written for us. So the same is true for us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what are we hearing the voice of God about? And we're hearing the voice of God about entering his rest. We're also hearing about how to enter his rest and so we enter the rest of God through faith, through soberness and through diligence and through obedience. And then later on, as we land, we're going to talk about what that rest is. Now firstly, we enter through faith. Verse two says this: "For good news and that's the same word, Evangelion, that came to us, the gospel was preached to us as another translation. The gospel was preached to us just as it was to them, the same message. But they, it, they did not benefit it, sorry, but it did not benefit them because they did not mix it with faith. That's another translation of what we said. They did not mix it with faith. The work of mixing faith is that we act in response to God's promise because we are God's people who He's leading us into God's rest. Now, what is faith? Faith is not belief. And faith is not understanding. Belief and understanding are components of faith, but there is more to it than that. It's not enough that you believe, and it's not enough that you understand. We know this because other scripture in James tells us that the demons believe, and they tremble. We know that throughout Jesus' time on earth, that often the demons understood who Jesus was, and his disciples didn't. The demons that were coming out were saying, you are the Son of God. And the disciples are saying, well, so who are you again? Like, what are you? And Jesus is, is, is helping them understand what is going on. Now, we're going to talk a lot about faith, and specifically when it comes to Hebrews 11. But suffice to say that faith for our purposes this morning is acting on the fact, acting on the fact, not just believing and understanding, but acting on the fact that God is who he said he is, and that he will do what he said he will do for our joy and for his glory. That God is who he says he is. He will do what he said he will do for our joy and for his glory. There is this element of submission and obedience when it comes to faith. To, to be able to respond to God's invitation to enter the Sabbath rest of God. Now it's not the size of your faith that matters, but it's who your faith is is in that matters. We, we look at two examples. We look at the example of the centurion. The centurion comes to Jesus. The centurion is a Roman. He is an oppressor. He comes to Jesus and he says, my servant is sick. And so Jesus begins to walk with him to his servant's home and the centurion says to him, no, no, I don't need you to come there. I'm a man under authority and I also am a man that has authority. If you just say he'll be healed, then I know that he'll be healed. And what does Jesus say? I have not found faith like this in Israel. This Gentile oppressor exercises his faith in Jesus and, and basically says this: I know who you are, and I know that you can say, that you can do what you say you're going to do. You don't even need to come to my house. And he's healed. In that same transaction, there is a woman that reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And she is sick, she has internal bleeding, and, and she's bleeding, and she thinks to herself, we know this because ultimately there's this whole hullabaloo, I don't have time to get into this, but she's thinking, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'm going to be made well. What is she thinking in her mind? I know who this is, I know what he said he can do. I don't even need to ask him to do it. I'm just going to touch the hem of his garment. And he feels power go out from him. And he turns around and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you kidding? This is, this is like a mosh pit here. You know, I mean, like, guess who touched you? And then, and then she thinks she's going to be exposed. But he says to her, your faith has made you well. There's the sense of saying, I know who you are. I believe that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. And entering God's rest is that action. That centurion had to take an action. That woman had to take an action. In our lives, we need to take an action of actually saying, I believe who that is. Now, when we first came to faith, we took that action. We responded to the good news of the gospel when we submitted to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and King. Now, that's the harder part of mixing it with faith. And every day, we have the opportunity to mix our faith with who Jesus says he is. When we have the opportunity to be generous instead of stingy, what are we saying about God? God, you are my provider. That that generosity is something that you have called me to be because it's modeling something of who you are. And I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are. You're going to be my provider when there's an opportunity for us to take vengeance, when there's an an opportunity for us to fix a situation in our own strength, we can actually say, God, you are a forgiving and a kind God. Help me to be gracious. I don't want to right now. I'm going to throttle this person, but just help me to be gracious. That's a mixing of your faith. Not only when we enter salvation, but when we continue through it, there's a mixing of our faith. We need soberness and obedience. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, let us soberly assess, is another way to put that, let us be careful, lest any of you should seem to fail to reach it. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, He appoints a certain day, saying, today, through David, so long afterward. What he means is, is like, this is not just back for then. David is reminding us, and I am reminding you, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There are consequences for ignoring and rejecting the voice of God. There, the whole swath of Scripture from the Old Testament through Revelation says that there are consequences for ignoring and rejecting an invitation to Sabbath rest. We cannot assume that there will be a tomorrow. We cannot assume that. Was it two, three weeks ago, Priscilla, this young woman, crossing the street with children, hit by a car, dead. I'm sure her family and her children thought there would be a tomorrow. That's why scripture says, Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Tomorrow is not promised to us. The most amazing thing about this is his voice. We, get to hear, we, we, we hear his voice through worship. We hear his voice through the word. We also hear his voice through the Holy Spirit. It's his voice. His voice is trustworthy. We can trust his voice. We can trust what he says because we can trust him. Now, I know this is difficult, because going back to what I said, is th- there's something within us that just doesn't want to trust anything that we feel is not going to be for our immediate benefit now. But this is his voice. He knows me better than I know myself. That's a stupid little story. I had a friend of mine, he knows me really well. He's known Cara and I for a long time. And uh, I was going to take Cara and I for a date, and I said, um, I'm going to take her out to watch Les Miserables. Yeah, exactly. So those of you that know me, know that I'm not a fan of musicals at all. So he says to me, bro, you know it's a musical, right? And I said, I know, but Karin likes it. And he says, no, no, it's like a musical where all they do is sing. Like there's no talking in it at all. And they also are really bad. It's Russell Crowe and some other guy trying to sing. So don't do it, man. Don't do it, it's not a good idea. So I listened to his voice, and I, and I didn't do that because I trusted him, and I knew that he had my best in mind. A couple of years later, for our 25th anniversary, I said to him, hey, I want to take Karin to go see Hamilton. And he said to me, do it. I said, are you sure? He said, bro, I know you. I know this is not your thing, but that thing is one of the most profound um, uh, performances I've ever seen, and you'll love it because of the history of it, and Karen will love it because of kind of the, um, it was at the Pantages. She'll love it because of the environment. You should go do it. And I was like, this guy knows me. He, he said no to that thing, and he said yes to this thing. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to do it, and yes, it was pretty profound. We went there for the last day. Uh, you know, it was the, the final show, and everyone was losing their minds, and I was like, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. I must say I, I missed most of it, but the reality is, is like, I liked I mean, I didn't buy the soundtrack. I didn't do any of that. I'm telling you the story to say is I trusted him because he knew me. And in the one moment he said no, and in the other moment he said yes to two things that for me could have been the same thing. But ultimately, no, they weren't. And sometimes our lack of trust in God is because in that one moment he said yes and in that other moment he said no and it doesn't seem that different to us. It doesn't seem like these two things are very different. But he knows us. And he knows that circumstance. And we can trust his voice. Lastly, there's a sense of diligence. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive, be diligent, be zealous to enter that rest so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, if you're like me, you're like, which is it? Are we resting or are we striving? Because the two things don't seem to go together. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. Therefore, let us strive, be diligent to enter that rest. Now the reality in terms of this scripture, what's clear is that we, we cease our dead works, not all work. We cease our dead work, not all work. Because the disciples asked Jesus this question when Jesus was walking the earth. In John 6, verse 28, they said to him, what shall we do that, that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Diligence is the opposite of disobedience. So the Israelites didn't make it in to the promised land because they were not diligent, they were not faithful, they weren't sober in terms of God's invitation. Diligence is a response to grace and truth. Diligence does not earn us grace. It's a response to grace. Striving, that word strive, is is the same word that Paul used when he talks about running the race. It's, It's like breasting the tape. It's striving. It's running hard to be able to enter that rest. This doesn't mean that we cease from all our work, but it means that we cease from work that is intended to gain the favor of God, to somehow twist his arm into accepting me somehow twisted. I've done everything that you've told me to do, so now I gain access. No, I have access. Therefore, I'm diligent and I strive to enter that rest. We'll see as we continue to go through Hebrews in chapter 6, the writer talks about faith towards God and repenting from dead works. In chapter 9, he says the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from dead works And so what he's doing is he's separating the work of God, which is a response of grace and faith, with the work towards God, which means I can earn something. The paradox of striving to enter God's rest is something that is kind of difficult for us. There are those in this room that are very comfortable in being in a situation where I have what I have because I earned it. And there are others that just want to sit back and receive without any sense of work. And what God is saying is, there is a work. Strive to enter his rest. And that work is faith, soberness, diligence. That work is exactly what Jesus told his disciples. What is the work of God? This is the work of God that you believe in the one that he sent. Now, this is where... Where, where we fail, the transition between believing and acting. Just like the demons, remember? The demons believe and they tremble. and no, you have to submit and obey. The reasons why the demons are enemies of God is because they know that he exists, they know who he is, but they won't submit themselves to his rule. That is the massive difference, and that is the work of God in this case. I know who you are, I know that you're able to do what you say you're able to do, and I'm going to submit myself to that process. That is the work of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. A person that is motivated by grace is not a lazy person. A person that is motivated by grace is not an undisciplined person. A person that has understood grace and truth and sees Jesus for who he truly is, is a person that can work in response to that grace. And be able to say, God, I'm choosing to submit in this area. I'm choosing to believe you. I'm choosing to follow you. I'm choosing to know that your voice, when I hear your voice, even though it sounds contrary to what I want and what I believe is best for me, I'm choosing to submit myself to that. There is work. Our work is to believe and respond. Resisting unbelief is work. It's difficult. Rejecting what the world says about who you are about who God is, and about what ultimate joy is, is work. Reorienting our our lifestyles in order to be able to live a countercultural life that shows something of the beauty of God is work, particularly in a culture that is squeezing us and molding us to become more like them. But we are not alone in it. As Paul says, it is not me, but it is the grace of God within me. So if, if I need to exercise faith and soberness and obedience and diligence, what am I exercising this for? What does this rest look like? Well, rest looks like provision and abundance. And so provision, very simply, is that when the people stepped into Canaan, God provided everything that they needed. God provided food. God provided resources. Uh, God rescued them from everything that they were dealing with in that moment. The tragedy of Canaan is that it was temporary. The tragedy of Canaan is that not only was it temporary, but they continued to act in the way that the previous generation acted, not believing that God would do what he said he was going to do. So God said, I've given you this land, but there is a work My kindness, my goodness, my grace, and my power has given you this land, but there is a work that you need to fulfill, and that is the dispossessing of these nations. You're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. When Caleb and Joshua came back, they didn't say, we are like grasshoppers in their eyes, but we can do it. What did they say? They said, the Lord is able to do it. If we trust God, he's able to do it. And so God calls us into this invitation of rest, and he said, there are these things that you can attain to as you walk into this rest. What are they? Freedom from bondage. That's what they received. As they exited from Egypt, they were free from being slaves. We have received freedom from bondage. Our slavery to sin has been broken. Freedom from their enemies. God said that I will fight on your behalf. The Canaanites, the Hittites, all the other tites. The, the reality is, is that we, we still, within the context of God's rest, have enemies to fight. Those enemies are the enemies of shame. Those enemies are the enemies of guilt. They kind of rise up and they come back at us. Those enemies are also the enemy of autonomy and comfort. And we trust God that because we have new status as sons and daughters of, as sons and daughters of the living God, that we are in His rest Yes, we also trust God that when those enemies do rise up and when shame and guilt do rise up and when autonomy and comfort do rise up, that God is able to deal with those things as we submit to him and say, you are who you say you are. You can do what you said you were going to do. He gives them abundant food and provision. He gives them his direct presence. He said, now we're going to build a a temple. In those days, that was it. Because remember, they had a tabernacle, that they had to move from place to place to place, and now we are going to have a place where we can have direct presence, where we can enter the throne room of God's grace, as as the writer of Hebrews will say later on. We can have presence of God, and, and we have that. Everything has been provided for us. We have his direct presence, a place of worship, because we are his place of worship. I mean, as we sit in this gym, we recognize that there is a holiness in this moment not because this looks like the Sistine Chapel, but because the Spirit of God dwells within each and every one of us. And that Jesus is present in a unique way through His Holy Spirit because He's the head of the body of the gathered church. But it's also a place of abundance. In Joshua 5 verse 6, it says this, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war, who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that, they would not, that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's a coffee shop called Milk and Honey. Have you guys been to? It's pretty good, actually. Um, do you need milk for survival? Do you need honey for survival? No, this talks about joy, abundance, delight. God is saying, not only am I going to give you a land, but I'm going to give you a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of delight and joy and pleasure. And now there's still this connection to grace-filled effort in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Because a land that is flowing with milk and honey, we still need to recognize, is a land of stinging bees and kicking cows. You don't get, you don't, you don't just get, I mean, most of us will go to a farmer's market and we'll buy a honey or we'll buy a milk. But in those days, God is not saying, and look, there's just the honey and there's just the milk and it's just there and it's just flowing for you. No, the honey is in the form of a beehive that you need to go and get the honey from the milk is in the form of a cow that you need to go and milk it and get it from there is a grace filled effort when jesus says the thief comes to steal to kill and to destroy but i have come that you may have life life to the full or abundant life or the nlt says a rich and satisfying life and when we've really entered the rest of god it isn't just a provision of god that we experience but it's the lavish abundance Of God that we experience. That's why the first of the four pillars of mercy comes is we revel in the mercy of God. Revelry is actually a word uh, that needs to be rescued because when we talk about revelry, it's often revelry and drunkenness and those kinds of things. No, we revel. We are passionate about what God has given us. And so we revel in the mercy of God. We want to model a life that is a life of peace, a life of purpose, and a life of passion. We don't just want to be forgiven sinners. We want to be purposeful, loved sons and daughters of the living God. And so he didn't just come to deal with the issue of sin. He came to draw us into his family. So that regardless of what our past was, our future is a hundred times better than what our past ever could be if we would only trust his voice. God's salvation is lavish. His presence is real and his promise is certain. And we have a bit of a taste of it now. We we have an hors d'oeuvre of it now. But the full meal comes on the day where Jesus returns. I heard a loud voice. And what have we been saying the whole time throughout this message? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What John says, he, he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making all things new. And then he says this, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. The same voice that says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The same voice that is inviting you into the Sabbath rest of God. The same voice is saying, I'm making all things new. That you can step into a place of abundance now and know the fullness and the presence of God. That you can step into a place of peace Now, but it's just a taste of what you receive when we come to see him face to face. St. Augustine, in his confession, says this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Band, you can come up. I know for some of us, even as as I'm talking, there's like a little bit of a cold hand that's kind of grabbing your heart and you're saying, I have been a Christian a long time and I'm not sure that there is abundance, that there is milk and honey, that there is all this joy that you're talking about. I'm not sure that there is. Some of us, we're in a place where where we've never actually stepped into the land of promise. Where we've never actually said to God, I trust that you have delivered me from the slavery of sin. I trust that you have defeated the enemies of death, of meaninglessness, of Satan. I've never trusted that you'll bring me into God's presence through your Holy Spirit invading my life. And this morning, there is an opportunity to do that for the first time. This morning, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I would say for the majority of us, we maybe are feeling like, yeah, I've been doing this a long time. I know my sins are forgiven. I know my future is secure. But my present is not filled with delight and with joy and with the presence of God. Someone told me this week, the Garden of Eden was was not a wasteland with this one tree making it easy to be tempted. And he said to me, Adam and Eve had to walk past all these amazing fruit trees, all this lavishness that God provided for them. Walk past it and say, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. What's the one that he said we shouldn't have? That one. For us, our lives are generally not some wasteland, desert place where the temptation of Satan is the only thing that we reach out for. For most of us, it's a sense of walking through the Garden of Eden saying, not good enough, not good enough, not grateful for that. What was the thing that people said we shouldn't do that will bring us fulfillment? That's that's what I'm looking for. For some of us, we could be like the the Israelites. Imagine being a grandparent, I mean a, a grandson of the people that were not allowed entry into or wandered around in the wilderness. I just want your grandfather to say to you, son, listen to the voice of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And they come back with all this fruit and they say, it's as God said. It's as God said. And in your mind, you have the voice of your grandpa. And then you have the voice of Joshua and Caleb saying, our God is able. It's a land flowing with milk and honey Our God is able. Maybe I've been in the wilderness for such a long time that I'm used to it. I'm used to it. Yeah, I'm tired of man and I'm tired of, of all this, but actually, what's the point in asking for anything more? I'm saved and I'm going to be in heaven one day. It's good enough for me it's not good enough for god because god has called you in a place of abundance and joy and delight and you can receive that even just a taste of that this morning or maybe we're like the oldest son in the story of the prodigal son the oldest son comes back and he says what is all this abundance about you you you've you've slaughtered the fattened calf you've given him a robe a ring on his finger you've put shoes on his sandals and, and I didn't even ask you for a goat. And I'm sitting here serving you all these years of my life. And I've never experienced the joy and pleasure and abundance that this prodigal is receiving. And the father says to him, everything I had was yours. You just need to ask. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I see people around me. Experiencing joy and abundance and delight makes me kind of mad. Because I've been doing this a long time. And I'm not sure that God can provide a place that flows with milk and honey. And I'm kind of angry. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. God longs to bring us into a place of joy and delight, not just a place of survival. And we're just going to let the song play over us. We're just going to allow the Spirit of God to speak to us and then see where we're going to go from here. We believe God speaks most powerfully through His Word. In fact, next week we talk about the sharpness of God's word but because we believe that we also believe he speaks through his body we believe that there is something unique when the body gathers which means we'd be able to access various gifts and so Tiff and Candace have something they want to share and then I'm going to lead us in a response
1: Um, so, as I was listening to this preach, I was struck by something that I'd learned um, a while ago when I was doing like a culture study that um, in ancient Egypt, milk and honey were used specifically as a salve for wounds. And I was just thinking about that and praying about it, and I was like struck by the f- idea that like Israel didn't realize or didn't acknowledge that they needed healing in the way that they viewed God. Even as God has done so many things for them in the past, He parted the Red Sea, um, He He delivered them from Egypt, and they still had this broken way of understanding that He's their good Father. They had like this this messed up like attachment for psychology words. Um, they had a wound from Egypt, and they had internalized this idea that God was far off and He would not provide. And I just. I was struck by this idea that, like, we may be operating out of a way of interacting with the world around us and interacting with God out of this defensive posture of, "Oh, He won't provide, so I'm going to make sure that I'm okay without Him," and not understanding that, like, He is leading to us a place, leading to, leading us to a place of abundance, but also healing um, of those ways of interacting that we've adopted from the world around us, from our flesh.
2: I was sharing with Nick that um, this week was a roller coaster. It was up and down, and up and down, and um, just kind of sharing a little bit of some coping mechanisms that were not holy. <laughs> and um, just got to this place where I was like, I can't do this anymore, God. Whatever you want me to give up, I'm I'm just I'm over it. Whatever you want me to do, and I just felt prompted to ask, How do you see me? And pleasure. And I thought that's definitely from God and not my subconscious. Because the reason why I cope is because of the pain that I'm not believing that God sees me as pleasure. And I thought of that word elation. And I just knew that God had met me there. And that that's where rest is. That he is my paradise that He is your inheritance. It's
0: a fresh reminder through those words that maybe this morning God wants to realign our view of who He is. His voice is faithful and true, trustworthy. He is a God that provides. He is a God that sees. He also wants to realign how we see ourselves because of who he is. Um, And Candace and Tiffany will be on my left to your right if you are connecting with any of what they're saying. I would love to have just a little more time for the Spirit to minister to you if you're in your seat. If If you need that extra time, the band is gonna sing. For the rest of us, I wanna invite you to go to the table to grab the elements that make the rest of God possible for us Uh, his uh, broken body and his shed blood come back to your seat and then we'll take communion together Father our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you we hold uh, in our hands a representation of your body broken for us. Let's eat. We hold in our hands a representation of your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Your broken body your shed blood, rescued us from the slavery of sin, conquered the enemies of shame and guilt and autonomy, brought us into a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet we look to you as we drink this meal, having a taste of your kingdom and longing for that full meal that we will eat with you one day. Let's drink Melissa has something to share in terms of maybe some people to minister to. Um, And then we're going to sing, people can receive ministry.
3: Hi, my name is Melissa. I just, you know, as we were listening to the message, I felt um, prompted just to be able to share a little bit about Jimmy and my story. For those of you who do not know us, um, a big part of what brought me and Jimmy to Mercy Commons was our almost divorce and um, going through that season. And I don't. something that came up was, I just wonder if someone here needs to be reminded that it's not only just our faith, but the faith of the community around us that gets to bring us through those times of barrenness and wilderness. And when Jimmy and I didn't know if we would make it, I just remember asking God, like, how am I supposed to fight for my marriage? Like, how do I do that when, I'm, when we're not talking or when we're not in a space of even communicating well? And I just was able to find a group of community that were able to come around me, circle around me, let me ugly cry all I needed. And they ushered me into spaces of truth that I couldn't see, that I couldn't feel on my own. And if that's someone here that needs a space um, to be able to have people that you can become known to. I just want to pray over you guys, too. And the fact that Jimmy and I are here, we're leading a life group, we're living a miracle right now. And if someone needs that, I also want to pray over that, too.
0: Thank you. Community is a gift because it leads us uh, together into the land of milk and honey. You are God's children set apart. You're God's temple in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Go out there, be the church, invite others into a land flowing with milk and honey. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.